Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, we continue our worship to you this morning, acknowledging your greatness. Most holy, most glorious, the ancient of days, we give you, Lord, our love and our gratitude. We express our awe and wonder at how glorious you are. And Lord, we are thankful that your love has been poured out upon us, that through your Son, by the power of your Spirit, we can be cleansed from sin, we can be brought near to you, to enjoy relationship with you, to be restored, having the image of God in us renewed. We thank you, God, for your goodness towards us and how you've revealed yourself in your Son, in your Word. Holy Spirit, as we've sung to you and worshipped you this morning, we ask that you would do your work of opening our hearts and illuminating the truth and conforming us to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray all this in faith, confident that you always accomplish what you set out to do. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves to your purposes this morning. and We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. We'll continue our series there this morning. How many of you all have gotten involved in tracing your family tree, maybe you've put together a book and done research, maybe you've even sent in and done the, you know, the DNA testing where you can find out where your people really hail from. Maybe you thought you were Italian, but you're not, something like that. How many of you guys have, have done something like that out of curiosity? I know some of you have, some of you haven't. Um, some of you who haven't yet may reach a point where you get interested in that sort of thing. I know when I was younger, I was like, what's the point in that? I don't really care that much, but now I'm not old, but I'm in my mid-30s, it's starting to become more interesting to me, to be honest. And really, people are often fascinated with this sort of thing. There's a reason there's a market for it, right? There's a reason this stuff sells. It's because people want to discover their personal history. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think it's deeply meaningful to know where you came from. We want to know who are we, And when we learn our history, when we know where we've come from, it helps us appreciate who we are today and and even gives us an appreciation for where we're going. In the book of Exodus, this story that we've been recounting would have functioned much the same way for the people of Israel. Not because it necessarily was tracing their their DNA, their biological hereditary traits, but the book of Exodus traced the details of their experience. This is their story. It's a story of slavery and oppression and suffering. It's a story of a great and powerful deliverance that was brought about by God himself through his powerful hand. It's a story of freedom. The people who are brought together into relationship with God and they go out into the wilderness to worship him. They step into a new era in their existence. Their exodus from Egypt would be written down. It would be sung about. You can read about it in the Psalms. It would be commemorated each year with a special sacrificial meal, the Passover, and a week-long festival, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They never were to forget where they came from. God knew that it was essential that they know their past and that they understand and remember what it was that God had done for them. But this book, this book of Exodus, also holds a benefit for us today because this book reminds us where we came from in a spiritual sense. It not only tells us what God did for Israel, but this story, the Exodus event itself, 
establishes a pattern of sorts, a paradigm for God's redemptive work. It tells us what God is doing in Exodus, and what God did in Exodus foreshadowed what God planned to do in the future, didn't it? An even greater act of redemption from sin through Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And this means that the Exodus story actually touches our own experience. The themes we find here connect to our own salvation. What I want to do in our text this morning is draw out four aspects of God's salvation that are true not only in the Exodus story, we'll see them there, but they're also true for all who trust in Jesus Christ, all who have come to receive salvation through faith in him. The first aspect of this salvation is in Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 32, and it's this. Salvation comes through God's victory over the enemy. Salvation comes through God's victory over the enemy. To remind us where we're at, God has announced through Moses to Pharaoh that a tenth and final plague is coming, the death of the firstborn, and that this plague will bring about the freedom of Israel. We find in verse 29 that just as God says, it happens. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. Salvation comes through God's victory over the enemy. At midnight that day, death came and not a house, scripture tells us, not a house was unaffected. There was either a dead lamb that had been slain and its blood marked the doorway or there was a dead child taken in judgment. And there's an eerie description here of the sound that rose up that night. There was a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, a wailing. There's this eruption of horror and grief at what had taken place. Ironically, this great cry is the same word that was used to describe the prayer of the Israelites back in chapter 2. They'd been oppressed. They'd been treated with cruelty. They'd been afflicted, and their great cry rose up before the Lord. And remember, he heard. And now it's the Egyptians' turn. This is not the last ironic turn of events. Do you remember before how Pharaoh had angrily declared that he never wanted to see Moses and Aaron's face again? That was the last time they had talked. But here we find that Pharaoh is summoning them. He wants to talk to them again. Remember how Pharaoh had denied their national sovereignty? Well, here he's recognizing them as the people of Israel. Remember how he had said at the beginning that he would never let them go? Well, now he's urgently pressing them to leave. He says, up, go out, be gone. Remember how he had resisted them leaving with their wives and their children? He had negotiated with Moses about them leaving their livestock. Now he says, take it all. Take it all. Your wives, your children, the herds, as you have said, everything you've asked for, take it all. Remember in the first confrontation with Moses, he had said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? 
And now we find Pharaoh on his knees asking Moses to bless him. This is a great reversal, isn't it? A great reversal. Pharaoh had been the one oppressing Israel. He had been the one standing in the way of their freedom, the one who had arrogantly defied God and defied his word. And he had therefore positioned himself as God's enemy, taking God on head to head. But he had lost. This final blow, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, had broken his stubborn will. God defeated him. And this defeat of God's enemy, this defeat of Israel's enemy, broke the shackles of their slavery. They were free. Salvation is found in God's victory over the enemy. We pointed this out a few weeks back, but I want you to consider it again. What was Israel's part in all of this? What did Israel do to bring about their salvation? What did Israel do to achieve freedom and escape their bondage? Nothing. They did nothing. They prayed, they waited, they trusted, but God won the victory. Their salvation depended on his power. And friends, this is true not only of Israel's salvation, but also of ours. In fact, the New Testament speaks of us in our lost condition as sinful people, as being captives to God's enemy. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world, that includes the people who live in it, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this in reference to unbelievers. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How can we escape this slavery? How can we escape the power of the evil one? How can we be set free from our blindness and our bondage? It will require that the enemy be vanquished that the evil one be defeated, that his power over us be broken. And that is exactly what God has accomplished in our salvation. And he's done this through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He's saying the Son of God took on flesh, he became one of us. Why? The author of Hebrews tells us, so that through death, He, referring to Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How are we freed from our slavery? Through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He shatters the power of death, the power of the devil. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's reference to the spiritual powers of darkness. He has disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, through his work on the cross. Just as we find Pharaoh crippled and beaten and humiliated, the New Testament tells us that God, through his son Jesus Christ, has crippled and beaten and humiliated our enemy. Colossians 1.13 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
You see, salvation, whether from slavery and exodus or from sin and death today, salvation depends not on us, not on our efforts, not on our powers and abilities, but on God, the only one who can defeat our enemy. Our part is simply to believe God's word, to trust in God's power, and to wait and see his deliverance. Salvation comes through God's victory over the enemy. But there's a second aspect of this salvation I want to bring out. Number two, salvation also includes God's provision for his people. It includes God's provision for his people. Look in verse 33 through 36. It says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Plunder is a military term. So also is the word hosts that we find in verse 41. It says, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. These are military terms. This whole scene is stylized as a great battle. God versus Pharaoh. Pharaoh here is the vanquished king. God is the victor. And God invites his people to share in the spoils of war. They had lived in Egypt for decades as slaves, but they would leave as conquerors. They would leave victorious. You see, the great salvation that God had brought about meant blessing and provision for Israel. This clothing and the gold and the silver that they were given was not just remuneration for wages wrongfully withheld, although it was that in a simple sense. But even more importantly, this was provision for the journey ahead. God knew what they would need. And in his act of salvation for them, God was supplying them with everything they needed, providing it for them. They needed clothing because they didn't know this, but they're about to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided what they needed. In the wilderness, there's not a lot of convenience stores. You can't go to Walmart. You don't get two-day shipping from Amazon Prime. So if you needed something, you either had to make it, grow it, build it, or you could barter. There was, there was caravans of traders and, and different nomadic groups that were traveling through on these highways. The children of Israel would have had the ability to barter, to purchase, to buy the things that they would need for the journey. But even more importantly, God knew that they would need materials to produce essential elements for worship. God was about to give them instructions to build a tabernacle, this ornate tent, this portable temple, really. And within that tabernacle, they were to have several different implements that were important for their worship, many of them overlaid with gold or other precious metals. And so God was providing everything that they would need for life, for worship. You see, what God would require from them in building the tabernacle, God was already supplying for them. This is how God's works of salvation always come about. God, all, God's grace always brings us a rich supply of everything that we will need for the journey. You see, when you and I come to Jesus Christ, when we turn away from slavery and from death and from sin and from the world that we have known, we don't know what lies ahead. It's a long journey. 
But we step out in faith, trusting God will supply us with everything we need for that journey. Not only does God give us an eternal inheritance with Christ, yes, that is coming someday. That is coming someday. We will share in the spoils of his victory. But God also will give us everything we need for this journey. And I'm not just talking about material provision, although God does promise that too. But I'm especially here focusing on our spiritual needs. Listen to 2 Peter 1 verse 3. I love this. Peter writes that his divine power has granted to us, given to us, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God in his power has granted to you, Christian, everything that you need for life and godliness. Consider all that God has provided us. As we sung this morning, we have his spirit. We have the presence of God with us who supplies the power that we need to say no to sin and to say yes to God's word. We have the spirit within us to illuminate God's truth so that we can see and understand and embrace what it is that God has for us in his word. We have the spirit who gives us comfort. We have the spirit who leads us and directs us into God's will. The spirit of God is a great blessing and a provision that is given to all who receive Christ through faith. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not some other blessing we get later. It's not like level two of the Christian life. It is given to all. All who come to Christ receive his spirit. This is an amazing provision that God gives us for the journey of the Christian life. And we have God's word, don't we? We have everything we need right here for life and godliness. Everything God wants us to know is here. It is true. It is sufficient. It's enough. God has given us his word, and he's given us the church, hasn't he? We have the fellowship of other believers. We have their encouragement. We have their accountability. We have their prayers for us. Their gifts pour God's grace into our life, and we into theirs. We don't have to walk this journey alone. We follow Christ together as disciples, together as the family of God, together as the body of Christ, together. What a blessing and a resource. Because this life would be too hard if you were the only one following Jesus. But you're not the only one. God has given you the church. And we could go on and on. These are just a few of the things God has provided. But the point is this. God's provision comes to us at salvation. All of these things are ours. When we experience God's saving grace, we get his spirit, we are given his word, and we are brought into his church. All that God will require from us faith, the obedience, the perseverance. He has graciously supplied everything we'll need for that in his spirit and in his word and in his people. As Philippians 4.19 says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, everything that we need comes from the Lord and he has no lack. He has no lack. If we feel like we've run out, because we're not recognizing the fullness of all that is ours in Christ. It's enough. Salvation not only comes through God's victory over the enemy, but it also brings with it great blessing and provision for the Christian life. Thirdly, salvation is also God's faithful keeping of his promises. It's his faithful keeping of promise. Look in verse 37. 
And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the event of the Exodus. It's finally happening. After 430 years, the people are leaving. And I know we've just jumped into this text today, but if you remember what's come before this, the previous 12 chapters, this has been building. Everything's been building to this point. God had said he would do this, and now it is happening. And this entire event, this exodus from Egypt, brings together so many of God's promises. So many of the things God said would happen are happening. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and we, re- we remember that initial promise that was made to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. Check. 600,000 men. These are the fighting men, the men of military age. So a lot of them have wives. Some of them have elderly parents. Some of them have children. There's a lot more than 600,000. They are a great nation, great enough that Pharaoh feared them. God has said to Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great. Check. Pharaoh is asking Moses for a blessing. The people of Egypt are begging the people to leave and giving them everything they have. God is keeping his promises. God had told Abraham, so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Check and check. There's a mixed multitude who's going with the Israelites. They're being a blessing to them. And those who have cursed Israel, Pharaoh and his servants... They have been cursed. God had told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is already happening with a mixed multitude, and it will happen as Israel departs Egypt, and as eventually Jesus Christ himself will be born from this nation to bring salvation to all the families of the earth. God's keeping his promises. This event of the Exodus is God doing what he said. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord had said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Check. This is a long time ago, but it's all happening exactly as God said. Salvation is God's faithful keeping of his promises. And this is true for them, and it's also true for us. When we consider what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, we know that the head of the serpent has been crushed, just like Genesis 3.15 says. He's been put to shame. The enemy has been defeated. We know that blessing for all the nations of the earth have come to us through Christ, through the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the king, the descendant of David, and a new covenant through his blood brings us forgiveness of sin reconciliation with God. It's hard to read a page in the Old Testament and not see promises that have been fulfilled for us through Christ. 
Our salvation is the fulfillment of so many promises. And here's the point. God always does what he says he will do. He always keeps his promises. I know this is basic. We talk about this all the time. It's so basic to God's character. It's one of the simplest and first truths that many of us learn about God, that God makes promises and God keeps promises. But we need to hear that, don't we? We need to be reminded of it. We need to be exhorted to trust in the God who keeps his promises. Why is that? Why do I have to hear this basic truth over and over again? It's because often there's a gap of time, isn't there, between the giving of the promise and its fulfillment. Abraham didn't live to see all these promises come true. Over 400 years in Egypt for the people of Israel is a long time. Think about their existence there. Maybe I can make a parallel this way. Imagine if you go 400 years back in our own nation's existence. What was going on here in Kansas 400 years ago? What was going on in this nation? Some of you know your history. You can do the math. That's a long time to be in one place. That's a lot of water under the bridge. It's a long time to wait. Even in our own salvation, there are promises that are not yet fulfilled, aren't they? None of you are resurrected yet, right? Physically? I don't think so. Not seen anybody that matches that description. We know that Jesus hasn't returned yet. That's a promise that is not yet fulfilled. We know that our sanctification is not yet complete. Scripture promises that one day we shall see him and we shall be like him fully. That hasn't happened. Sometimes it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. And in the waiting, we are often tempted to doubt. Our faith is tested. And we may begin to wonder, God, why so long? Why haven't you done it yet? You can put yourself in the shoes of the people of Israel and wonder, God, why did you leave us there so long? 430 years in the land, and at least 80 of those years were harsh slavery. Why did God not rescue them from slavery sooner? Why did God leave them in this foreign land for so many centuries? Why did he allow this to happen at all? We can start to answer that question. The simple answer is sovereignty. God simply decided this was best, and he has the freedom to do it his way. And that should be enough for us, but we can actually see more. We ask the question, why did God choose this way? Why did God leave them there for 430 years? Why did he allow slavery? Well, God is wise, and in his wisdom, he knew that this was actually the best plan. This was the best way to bring about his purposes. I want to give you three reasons why God left them in slavery for for, for so long, why he left them in Egypt for so long. And this is a benefit, hopefully, to you that comes from questions my wife asks me while we're brushing our teeth at night. Why did he leave them in there in Egypt for so many years? So that got me thinking about this. So thank you, Sarah, for asking that question. Well, first of all, and very simply, we, knew that, we know that God planned to leave them there so long because this is what would bring him the most glory God is setting up a showdown with Pharaoh. Remember, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. He does this through the plagues. He does this through parting the Red Sea. All of this displays God's power and his glory, and that's a good reason. Secondly, this would illustrate salvation. God rescued them from slavery so that they can worship. God poured out judgment as a tool of his redemption. God defeated their enemies so that they could be free. 
God provided a substitutionary sacrifice in the Passover lamb. God illustrated the necessity of faith. You have to personally respond by killing the lamb and painting the doorposts. All of this illustrates salvation. The Exodus is the cross moment of the Old Testament. And along with the covenant promises, this event forms the basis of God's relationship with his people, Israel. So it's an illustration of salvation. But third, and this is where I want to spend some time, this shows us God's divine wisdom. It's not just to display his glory. It's not just to give us an amazing illustration of salvation. This is God's divine wisdom to preserve and prepare his people. And it's necessary. It's his wisdom to preserve and prepare his people. Think about this. Why were they in Egypt in the first place? Go all the way back to the time of Joseph. A great famine came across that entire region of earth. And God had this little family, a family upon whom rested all the promises of salvation. And in order to preserve them, he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery, to end up in Egypt, to get promoted through an amazing set, series of circumstances to become the second in command. And then he invited his family to come and join him, and there they survived the famine. But once they were there in Egypt, it was important, get this, that the people of God, that this little family that was to become a nation, it was essential that they remain unique and distinct from Egypt. It was important that they did not assimilate into the Egyptian nation, the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian religion, the Egyptian way of life. They had to remain distinct. The seed, the offspring, the covenant promise had to be preserved. And this happened at the beginning, if you remember in Genesis, because they were considered unclean because they were shepherds. Joseph said, you guys won't be able to stay here because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. That's why they were in Goshen. The Pharaoh very generously says, here's a place of land. You guys set up shop. You live there. So from day one, they were, they were distinct and separate from the people of Egypt. And so they were left to themselves. And everyone was on good terms at the time. But we know that throughout the years, things changed and hostilities arose. As the nation became large, Pharaoh feared them because of their growing size. And so he mistreated them and relegated them to a lower caste of slavery. But this also would serve to keep them distinct, to keep them separate from the rest of the Egyptians, to keep them unique. So throughout 430 years, Israel and Egypt were oil and water. They never mixed. And this was important to preserve the messianic line and to preserve, get this, their desire to go home. If things had stayed good in Egypt, then why leave? But God's plan and God's purpose was to bring them into the land of Canaan. So it was important that they didn't get too comfortable in the land of Egypt. You see, God knows exactly what he's doing. And this season of time preserved them and kept them distinct. The, the, the slavery and the oppression and the hostility there would have kept the Egyptians and Israelites separately. But it also allowed them to grow into a great nation. Consider this. What if God had just provided for their needs back in Canaan? What if they had never gone to Egypt in the first place? God could have met their needs another way. But if they had remained in Canaan the whole time, the danger of assimilation would have been even greater. You see, there would have been a greater possibility for them to intermarry and blend in with the other peoples of the land because their culture and their language and even their ancestry was a lot closer. It was extended family. And so it would have been easy for them to become swallowed up among a pagan people with a pagan religion and a pagan culture. 
and for the promise and the seed, the offspring, to vanish. But had they stayed in Canaan and remained distinct, had they remained separate and holy, you know what would have likely happened? The same thing that happened in Egypt. The peoples around them would have said, you guys are becoming a threat. You're getting too big. And so likely what would have happened is that the surrounding nations would have seen them as a threat and sought to wipe them out before they had grown to full strength. You see, so this promise to make them a great nation and to give them the land of Canaan and to raise up the messianic seed, God knew it would be best fulfilled by incubating them in the land of Egypt, keeping them separate, growing them into a great nation, and then dramatically bringing them out uniquely, distinctly, and at full strength, and then bringing them back into the land. Then empowering them to drive out all those other nations. That's the conquest with Joshua. So I know you might be getting lost here with all of this history and the what ifs, but think about this. This is God's divine wisdom. God knew the best way to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. So we may sit back and go, why slavery? Why Egypt? Why 430 years? But God is infinitely wise. And he knows the best way to bring about his purposes. Did the elders of Israel understand all that? over those 430 years? Not likely. Not likely. Let me ask you this. Do we usually understand God's timing in our own lives? Not usually. Rarely, if ever. And if we do, it's usually only after the fact, right? But this display of sovereign wisdom and power and faithfulness, that God keeps his promises. Salvation is God keeping his promises, that ought to give us a deep sense of peace and confidence and help us to wait on the Lord. If he kept those promises, we know he'll keep his promises for us. It should strengthen our faith. It may seem surprising to us that God would choose to leave his people in Egypt for 430 years. But how much stranger that God would choose to send his own son to earth and take on human flesh. To be born as a baby, to a virgin, laid in a manger as no one seemingly of great importance. How strange that the Son of God would be despised and rejected by men. That the Savior of the world would be crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb. How strange. Is this the best way to bring about salvation? Yes. As Christ arose, as he ascended and announced his victory, we see in hindsight the marvelous wisdom of God's sovereign plan. He always knows what he's doing, and he does it the best way possible. We may not see God's purposes. We may not understand his reasons, but we can trust him. And our own salvation is proof of it. We can trust the Lord. Salvation is God keeping his promises. Fourthly, this is our last point this morning. Salvation is also God building a new community. It's God building a new community. Look in verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. 
All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Now, if you were with us last week, you know we talked at some length about the Passover. God had given instructions to them about this special meal, slaying the lamb, painting the doorposts, and then having this special meal. And it was through this that they would be delivered from this final plague. So you might think, haven't we already had instructions about the Passover? Why is he coming back to it now? Should this belong earlier, or is this just redundant? What's going on here? Well, remember what has happened in the Exodus. Look in verse 38. It says, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. You see, the Israelites weren't the only ones who were enslaved. There were other slaves, and they were jumping on this bandwagon, wouldn't you? Okay, we can go. I'll go with them. There also would have been Egyptians who saw the plagues. And they came to fear God and understand that he is the one and only God, the true God. And they said, well, that's the God I want to worship. If these are his people, if they're the people he blesses, then I want to be with them where they are. Perhaps there were other foreigners that were living in the land who also joined with. There's this mixed multitude, a motley crew of sorts, who's going out with the Israelites. And so that raises the question, what about them? Do they belong? When we celebrate the Exodus in the Passover, something that they're participating in, are they supposed to do that too? So God tells them exactly what he wants them to do. And get this, interestingly, the Passover is to be both exclusive and inclusive in different ways. Let me explain. The Passover was to be exclusive in this sense. It is only for those who belong to the community of faith. God tells Moses that it is only those who identify fully with Israel, only for those who are fully committed to Israel's God. They are the ones who can participate. And this commitment was signified by circumcision. That's why he tells Moses, those who are circumcised, those foreigners who take upon them this sign, they can participate in the Passover. You say, what is this whole circumcision thing about? Again, we have to go back to Genesis. Genesis is the prequel to Exodus. It's part one. In Genesis 17, God reaffirmed his promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham several things, that he would be the father of many nations, that kings would come through him, and that the land of Canaan would be theirs. And this covenant was to be an everlasting covenant. There was no expiration date. It didn't die off when Abraham died off. It was to be for each successive generation. And the sign of this covenant was circumcision. This was a ritual that graphically highlighted the centrality of offspring. Offspring are central to this covenant promise and in God's covenant purposes as well. In Genesis 17, 10, God says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and you. To take this sign upon oneself was to embrace your position as a recipient of God's grace. To, to go through this ritual and get circumcised would have been professing your faith in those promises. I believe what God said to Abraham, and I'm personally taking this promise to myself. God's telling Moses, listen, this Passover is exclusive. It is only for those who belong to the covenant. It's not for outsiders. 
This meal symbolizes God's redemption of his covenant people. And therefore, it's only to be shared by his covenant people. Makes sense, right? So it's not for foreigners who are passing through. It's not for any hired workers who are there on the short term, you know, to do a job, a contract job, get paid, and then leave. No, it's not for outsiders. It's exclusive. But it is inclusive in this sense. Any outsiders who desire to become part of this community of faith may do so. Verse 48 says, if a stranger, that's a foreigner, shall sojourn with you, that's living where you live, and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person person shall eat of it. Anyone who desires to become part of this community may do so. It's inclusive. It is open. And for those who are circumcised, those who have received the sign of this covenant, there's to be no distinction between them and the native-born Israelites. He says in verse 49, there's one law for the native and one for the stranger, equal footing. There's not different classes. This is full inclusion in the promise. Remember, God's plan since the beginning was bigger than Israel, wasn't it? The promise to Abraham was that he would bless all the families of the earth through him. And Israel was to be the vehicle for this blessing, not the sole aim, not the sole recipient of it. So this mixed multitude joins with Israel in the Exodus, and they are given full inclusion in the worship of God, in the celebration of his grace, because that grace comes to them as well, not just to the children of Israel. Ultimately, we have Jesus coming, don't we, to bring salvation, not only to the house of Israel, but to the whole world. As foreshadowed in Exodus, Jesus is the lamb whose bones were not broken. John 19 tells us this, that scripture is fulfilled, not one of his bones were broken. Just like the instructions here for the Passover lamb. As foretold by Isaiah, Jesus is a light to the nations, to the world. As recorded for us in John's gospel, Jesus says that he has sheep that are not of this flock referring to Israel, and he must gather them also so that there can be one flock with one shepherd. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're familiar with the words of Galatians three twenty six that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see, what what we observe in the Exodus, in these instructions for Passover, and what we see unfolding so fully and beautifully in the New Testament is this. God's salvation is the building of a new community, joining together people from different backgrounds, from different classes, from different ethnicities, and we are united together by faith. Our world really sees the depths of division and animosity that sin can cause between those of different classes, people whose skin may be a different color, people with different backgrounds. The world wants to divide everyone up into all these different groups. And at the same time, the world wants harmony. The world wants unity. 
and they're not finding it. But we have the solution in Christ. We have the solution. It is the good news of redemption in the gospel that those whom God saves are equal in standing before him. Full inclusion in the promises. Recipients of all of his grace. We all share fully in the privileges of salvation. This was to be commemorated in the Passover as foreigners and native-born Israelites sat down together and shared the meal and ate the bread and remembered what God had done to bring about salvation for this nation. And it's also portrayed so beautifully today as we take the Lord's Supper in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. God's plan is that he would be our God and we collectively would be his people, plural. Salvation has a corporate aim, a corporate dimension. You and I must, yes, we must necessarily place personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when we do, we become part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And that's what God is doing. God is building something, and you and I are a part of it. The salvation that we receive through Christ is, in one sense, highly exclusive, isn't it? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is exclusive. It is only for those who repent and believe. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that whoever believes in me will not perish. Right after that, he says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son. Salvation is exclusive to those who commit themselves in faith to the Lordship of Christ and trust in his promise of salvation. But salvation is also radically inclusive. Jesus proclaims the good news. We say today, come all who would enter. Come and share in the Lord's salvation. It is for you. It is for all who believe. The unifying feature in the community of faith is the fact that we share this one common denominator. We share faith in God's provision of salvation through Christ. It's the gospel that binds us together. It's our worship of Christ that binds us together. It's as we remember his death for us that we find the deepest foundation for unity in the church. It's not politics. It's not social status. It's not your hobbies. It's not your stage of life. That's not what brings us together. It is Christ. God, in his great work of salvation, is building this new community that is united in their shared experience of his grace. The Exodus event is a story of salvation. God defeated their enemy. He provided for his people. He fulfilled his promises, and he created this new community. A mixed multitude, native-born Israelites, all together as one. So Israel would exit Egypt with everything they owned, plus the wealth of their neighbors, And they would leave with new companions, this mixed multitude. And they left with a purpose. They went to worship the Lord. And they left with a call to remember God's salvation in the Passover. To remember where they came from. To remember what God had done for them. And I hope that as we read this story, we come away with the same impression that we would never forget where we came from. 
that God has defeated our enemy, that he's provided for us all that we need. He's fulfilled and is fulfilling his promises, and he's joined us together in this new community. Let's not forget where we came from and all that God has done for us through Christ. Let's bow and thank the Lord for what he's done. Father in heaven, those of us who know you, those of us who have tasted your salvation, we offer you our deepest thanks for doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves. It is only by your power that we can be set free. We thank you, God, for all you've given us, the rich blessings of salvation, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all that we need for life and godliness, an ever-present spirit, an all-sufficient word, and an imperfect but really perfect for us, church. You knew exactly what we needed. You've provided it all. Lord, we praise you for keeping your promises, for fulfilling them, sending a Savior to rescue sinners like us. And we thank you, God, that you've joined us together in your church, that we are united through faith in Christ. No matter what our past or our background, no matter what our ethnicity or our our economic status, our social status, we all come to the table as equals needy recipients of your grace who celebrate and remember all that you've done for us through Christ. Lord, I pray for any who may still be outsiders today, those who have not become part of this new community that you are building, those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, surrendered their heart to him in repentance, those who have not yet trusted in his salvation. Lord, I pray today that you would change their heart to use the language of the prophets, that you would circumcise their heart, remove the calluses of sin, remove the unbelief and the blindness, make them new. Add them into this mixed multitude so that they may celebrate and worship you with us forever. God, be glorified in this church as we remember and celebrate your grace. Amen.